Okay, let's open with a word of prayer here. Lord, we do thank you now for the privilege of calling you Father. Lord, what a precious reality that is. To know that we are children of the Most High God. And citizens of your heavenly realm. And Lord, that's encouraging as we look at just the downward spiral of the world around us to know that this is not really our home and that our future is not tied to this world that through our identification with Christ's death burial and resurrection we have ceased to be citizens of this realm and become citizens of yours Lord we thank you For the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand as our great high priest, as our advocate. And that Paul tells us that we have a new life. Life as you possess it, hidden safely for us with him. Waiting to be discovered, waiting to be appropriated. And waiting to one day be fully revealed when he is revealed in all of his glory. Lord, we look forward to that day, but until that day comes, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of him, that we would grow in your grace, and Lord, that your light would shine ever brighter through us to this dark world that is so desperately in need. Now, Lord, we want to commit this time to you, praying that your Holy Spirit would guide in it, open our hearts and minds to the truths you would have us to learn. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, today we're going to get into the final main section of the letter, and we'll be on this for uh, two or three weeks. Um, It's a main section because we will have uh, some final closing remarks. Uh, But we get to the section today that really brings everything that we've been learning down into the realm of our day-to-day lives. Now let me begin by again reminding us what the overarching theme of the letter is. What it is that holds this letter together. And that is the fact that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all things. Everything you and I need for the Christian life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. It's all there. And there is nothing, and we saw this earlier in the letter, there is nothing that can add to his work because he is over all things. He possesses the fullness of God. He is everything that creation was intended to be. And in fact, it's sourced in him and brought to being by him. And he is the head of the new creation. Everything is packaged in him. And he is the one that reconciles all things through his his blood. And of course... You know, Paul took on those challenges uh, to Christ's uh, provision. Those who wanted to say, you need something else. And there were a lot of, there were, just like in our day, there were a hodgepodge of things that were being thrown at the Colossian believers. Things that they needed in addition to Christ. And we 
saw last week that Paul says, you know, all these things, they sound good. But they really can't work. And they won't work. And there are a lot of things that are being proposed out there in the world that sound good. But they're ineffective. Because the world can only deal with the old Adamic nature. That's all they know. And the old Adamic nature will never fix the old Adamic nature. In fact, we've seen even God didn't set out to fix the old Adamic nature. God said he crucified it. He put it on a cross. And that's the way we are to view it. As beyond repair. As worthy only of being judged by the cross. And to move forward into the realm of, of newness of life. The new creation life. Now when you come to the part of the letter that we're getting into now. It is so imperative that you see that this is a progression of the argument Paul has been making since the very beginning. And that what he's calling for in this portion of the letter sits on the foundation of what he has already said. Because all too often, it's like believers will read through and, and read what Paul's saying, and then they get to this, and, and he's saying, you know, put off this and put on, uh, put on that. And, and all of a sudden, they seem to forget everything that Paul has just said, and it becomes a, a thing they're going to strive to do in their own strength. And we can't. You know, in the New Testament, you have what are, called, are referred to as imperatives. You know, things were to do or are put on and, and put off. And, you know, the thing that struck me several years ago, and I, I, and I believe I'm accurate on this. You can take it or leave it. But, you know... God gave the nation of Israel 613 imperatives there at Mount Sinai. And Israel thought that God had given them these imperatives in order to teach them how to live a righteous life. That if they just did these things or avoided certain things, then they would be righteous. And yet, the Apostle Paul comes on the scene, and in his letter to the Galatians, he tells us what the true purpose of all those imperatives were. They were to bring us to Christ. To show us, to show mankind, that they can't do it. That they can't live up to God's standard. Well, I believe the same is true of the imperatives in the New Testament. A lot of Christians think these imperatives are going to enable us to live a holy and righteous life. 
Now I think the imperatives are meant to do the same thing that the law was meant to do to bring us to Christ. That as we struggle at times and we try to produce these things and we find we can't, they're meant to drive us back to Christ. To show us that only He is capable. And that in Him we have everything we need. It's only through Him that these things are possible. Now, as we get to Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul begins to focus on how this reality that we have died with Christ and been raised with Him and now have a new life that's hidden with Him, how it is meant to impact my daily life. And he begins by pointing out that as I, by faith, see myself as having died with Christ and being raised with Christ, being alive with Christ, being sourced by Christ, how that is intended to cause me to turn from those things which formerly described me. He starts out by saying, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, some of the translations say to put to death these things. Um, I actually prefer the way the uh, uh, New American Standard words it. It's interesting, the Greek word here, uh, this is the only time it's used anywhere in the New Testament. So it's not like you can go back and compare it to other passages. Uh, and think, I, I, I think given the context and given what Paul has just said, that rather than it's saying that we are to put to death these things, we rather are to consider the members of our earthly body, <laughs> our hands, our foot, our mouth, our m- mind, we're to consider our bodies, all of it, dead to these things. Now I will grant you that in Romans 8.13, he does speak about putting to death uh, In the NIV it says, If by the Spirit you put to death myths, deeds of the body, you will live. But there he says it's what? It's done by means of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you and I crank out. As we put our faith in the finished work of Christ, as we put our faith in who we are and what we have in Christ, it is the Spirit's work to bring what is positionally true of us into our practical everyday lives. We have died to the realm of sin in Christ. Positionally, that's true. 
But it's the Holy Spirit's work of taking that death and bringing it into a practical sense in our, into our day-to-day life. In fact, Christ in the upper room discourse in... Uh, can't remember whether it's chapter 14 or 16. Both those chapters, he speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in one of those chapters, he makes the statement that the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit would not be to promote himself, but rather to take those things that are Christ's and make them known unto us. The Spirit's work is to take the things that are true of Christ and I would say our position in Christ to take those things and to bring them into a practical sense into our day-to-day lives. So that our lives begin to look like this. Like the new man rather than like the old man. And that's a process. Now, because we died with Christ, positionally speaking, Paul exhorts us to view the members of our body, to view our bodies as being dead to sin's use. You know, Paul's saying, as we begin to see ourselves in light of our new creation life in Christ... We are to count ourselves off limits to sin's use. And that's, of course, consistent with what Paul has written elsewhere. In Romans 6, 12 and 13, Paul wrote, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves unto God. But then this next little phrase is important, as those alive from the dead. A lot of Christians miss that little phrase. They say, you know, they think, well, yeah, we're to quit sinning and we're to present ourselves and our, uh, unto God. But until you understand what it means as those who are alive from the dead, you really aren't going to be able to do it. And w- way too many Christians are trying to present the old Adamic life to God. And God doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. You know, when I was growing up, and I don't, I don't know what goes on in a lot of churches today, but when I was growing up, a lot of the churches in the area had these revival services. And at the end, everybody, would, everybody with a mo- you know, that had a mother just about that would walk forward and commit themselves to God. You know? In fact, I went to Youth for Christ back then. Youth for Christ had a lot of good about it. But they constantly had these things where you were pressured. You know, you needed to commit yourself to God. And almost everybody in the room would walk forward. And a week or two later, they'd all walk forward again. And a week or two later, they'd walk forward again. And I'm not saying they weren't sincere. I'm saying... If they didn't understand their new life in Christ, 
What they were trying to dedicate or commit or whatever term you want to use, what they were trying to commit to him was their, just their old Adamic nature. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my best to live for God. Most of them didn't make it out of the parking lot. If we're going to present ourselves to God, we have to do it as those who understand what it means to be alive from the dead. And your instruments as, I mean your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So much of this hinges on understanding what it means that we died with Him, were raised with Him, and now have new life with Him. Now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks of the struggle he had as a believer. Paul says, you know, the good I want to do, I'm unable to do. And the evil I don't want to do, I continually do. A wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? Thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He says, thank, thank, uh, thank God through Jesus Christ. There is deliverance. But Paul says, I have this struggle. I know what's right and I can't do it. I know what's wrong and I can't avoid it. <laughs> but he makes an interesting statement in verse 17 of that chapter. He says, so now no longer am I the one doing it. But sin which indwells me. Paul says it is that sin that continues to reside with him. That in residence sin that was the source of the problem. Now at first glance this seems like a bit of a cop out. It's like Paul saying it's not my fault. It's sin. Kind of like those of you our age... Uh, probably remember the the uh, comedian Flip Wilson, whose signature phrase was, the devil made me do it. You know, it's not my fault, the devil made me do it. It sounds like Paul saying, it's not my fault, sin made me do it. I don't think Paul is trying to escape responsibility. I think Paul is seeking to show us the real point of failure. Where it all started. His point of failure started before he actually committed the act of sin. The point of failure began when he ceased to see himself as no longer in bondage to sin. The point of failure started when he failed to acknowledge that he no longer had to serve sin when it beckoned him. His point of failure came when he failed to see himself as now being off limits to sin. Miles Stanford has an example in the uh, Green Letters. He says there's the allegory of a sea captain who in mid-ocean is charged with a capital offense, but uh, put in chains and replaced by another. 
As the ship sails on, the chained one seeks to assert his old authority over the crew. Some of them might be foolish enough to respond, but there is no need to, for he has been judicially deposed. It's now simply a matter of acknowledging the new captain and refusing the threats and orders of the condemned one. The death sentence is not yet carried out beyond his being held in the place of death. His power broken, but he will be executed when the ship reaches port. In the meantime, he causes a lot of trouble. Now Paul doesn't talk about the old man being chained. (laughs) He talks about the old man being nailed to the cross. Put in a judicial place of judgment. A place that ultimately will lead to his demise. One day when we're in the presence of the Lord, the old nature, the old man will be gone. But for the moment he remains. He remains in a place of judgment. And, but we can foolishly still let him rule us. We can foolishly uh, respond to his promptings. As we fail to count ourselves dead to him and alive to a whole new realm. See, like Paul, all too often this is our point of failure. Sin beckons and we yield ourselves to its service. Why? Because unfortunately, all too often we continue to see ourselves as sin slaves. And therefore, when it, uh, you know, uh, uh, demands something, we give in. You've heard me say it before, and I'll probably say it many more times. This is evidenced by the fact that most believers still define themselves as sinners. If you define yourself as a sinner, you're defining yourself on the basis of your old Adamic life. You have a sin nature, I have a sin nature. But as far as God is concerned, that is no longer who we are. And we've got to come to see that. And at times, I fear that we think it's humility to say, well, I'm just a sinner. That's not humility. I think I shared before, at one time, Emily was talking to me, and she said, Dad, I always thought that humility was thinking lowly of myself. She said, I've come to see that humility is not thinking of myself. And that's probably one of the best definitions of humility I've ever heard. And it helps you understand how Christ could be defined as humble. (laughs) Christ did not have a low view of himself. When he stood before the the Sanhedrin being judged by them, he acknowledged he was God. (laughs) I don't know, but that's not a low view. 
when he was questioned by Pilate concerning whether he was the king of the Jews, he said yes. That's not a low view of himself. So where is Christ's humility? His humility is found in that he was not focused on himself. And when I say I'm nothing more than a sinner, I am focused on me apart from Christ. When I acknowledge that I am a new creation, my focus is on Christ because that's the only way I'm a new creation. I've got my eyes on Him. Humility comes when it quits being about me. And it begins being about Him. And so, you know, when we say, I'm nothing more than a sinner, we have a very defeatist attitude towards the Christian life. Well, I'm a sinner, so what's going to happen? I'm going to sin. When I begin seeing myself as a new creation in Christ, there is hope for a different life. And yes, all too often, I will, you know, unfortunately respond to my old master... But when I do so, I recognize it for what it is, and I acknowledge it, and I pick up and I walk on with the Lord. And more and more, He brings me into the realm of His freedom. Rick, can I say just that one of the things that helps me is, you know, when I'm struggling with a sin in my life, just being knowing these things brings just such freedom to say it to the Lord. Lord, I'm struggling with this. And I know it's unbelief. And I know that in Christ, you see me as righteous. And I'm acting like somebody I'm not. And, you know, just to understand these things and to, to, to just acknowledge it to Him. That's what confession is, is that we agree with Him. And then to be able to walk on in the spirit and be free of that and it's it's an amazing thing to me that realizing that when he looks on us he sees Christ's righteousness causes us doesn't it to want to not sin to live as who we are so that's been just it's been such a freeing thing to me to begin to understand these things because mm. we know what's happening when we're struggling Mm-hmm. It's not like we stay over there and well, at least I don't. Maybe you know, but Rick and I don't. I know because I live there. And <laughs> but and she knows I can point out that she doesn't. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a beautiful thing, and to really more and more see our identity yeah. in Christ and walk in that new man, and what it's like if we don't know. Is an incredible thing, and again, it puts us uh, focused on Him and not on ourselves. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what life is. Yeah. 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 You know, a statement I once read, and it's pretty accurate. It says, "Sin only has as much power as we grant it by lack of faith." Sin only has as much power in your life as you grant it by lack of faith. All those times that we really don't, you know, consistently cling 
tenaciously to what God has said and believe him. And so we let sin rule. That's what Paul acknowledged there in Romans 7. Now as a result of us at times um, giving in uh, to it, uh, we can get used by all sorts of sinful purposes. And Paul sets an example, uh, cites some examples, and, and these are the kinds of things he says, look, consider yourselves dead to these things. These are not meant to define you anymore. He says, immorality. And here he word, uses the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. But it's used of all forms of illicit sexual relationships, including adultery. And Paul says, you know, as we come to recognize, again, our new life in Christ, we are to see that our bodies were not created for immoral use. Now God did create us sexual creatures. But we were created to use our sexuality within the God-established bounds. There's a good book that we used to give to couples that we did premarital with called Sacred Sex by a fellow by the name of Tim Allen Gardner. If you ever get it, make sure you get the one by Tim Allen Gardner because there are some with that title that are not really sacred and, and not good. Tim Allen Gardner does a really good job, though, of developing this area and the sacredness, the holiness of it when it is used the way God designed it to be used. It is sin that calls us to use our bodies for purposes outside of the God-established boundaries. As unbelievers... We were slaves of sin. As unbelievers, we really didn't have an option. Even if we did not physically commit immorality, we toyed with immoral thoughts in our minds. But Paul says, you know, consider your bodies off limits. Why? Not because you're now stronger than sin. Not because you are going to be victorious over sin. You are going to learn to live in the realm of Christ's victory. In the realm of his freedom. In the realm of his life. As those who died with Christ, we're no longer bound to sin. We can now use our bodies in a way that, that God designed them to be used. Simply because we are part of a new realm. So we're in a position where by faith we can put ourselves off limits to sin's use. And instead use our bodies the way God intends for them to be used. And he talks about impurity which is simply a wider perversion. Sexual immorality is a big area of temptation. And you, you see it as an area where a lot of people fall. In fact, it's kind of an interesting 
phenomenon that in extremely legalistic circles, there's a lot of immorality that goes on. Because legalism is the old man trying to live up to a, a law system and the, the old man will ultimately show his true colors. There was a sordid chapter in the history of New Tribes Mission that they've had to deal a lot with in more recent years. And I think significantly it took place during the most legalistic period of time in the history of the mission. That when you had a lot of legalism, you had a lot of mess going on. So sexual immorality is a big area of temptation, but there are a lot of other areas that sin would seek to defile us. We're to see ourselves off limits to all those uses. Passion. The Greek word translated passion has to do with the affection of of the mind, a passionate desire. Now the Greeks in classical writing use passion in both a positive and a negative way. Paul, on the other hand, or really any of the New Testament writers, never use it in in a positive sense. When we speak, and it's even they use it somewhat differently than we often use it. When we speak of somebody being a very passionate person, that can be really good, you know. They're just really into, you know, what they, uh, they value or something. Paul, though, uses it to refer to being uncontrollably driven by a deep longing for something sinful. And that's why uh, a lot of translators translate it lust. Because it's a, it's a negative form of passion. Evil desires, craving for things that are sinful. Greed, literally the having of more. W.H. Griffith Thomas says that it is wishing for more than has been given. And he goes on to ask, do we realize that every desire, whatever form it may take, even a grasping of money or position, is really equivalent to idol worship? Putting uh, self in the place of God in our life as the object of our devotion. And so Paul's saying, look, all these things, they need to be, you need to consider yourselves dead to that realm, dead to those things. Why? Because you died with Christ and were raised with him. Now Paul goes on to point out why really we should not Want to yield our bodies to sin's use. He said, for it is, is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Given the reality of our new identity within Christ, why would you and I willingly participate in the kinds of things that ultimately are going to bring God's judgment on this world? Now, Paul's not saying that these things were going to bring down God's wrath on the believers. Christ bore his, God's wrath for us. But what he is saying, 
These are the kinds of things that are going to bring God's judgment on the world. And as part of the heavenly realm, as new creations, why would we willingly participate in things that are worthy of judgment? Things that are part of the realm we were once part of, but are no longer a part of. To let sin use us in this way is really following the pattern that Christ paid such a dear price to deliver us from. It says, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So Paul here is describing the old man, the old unregenerate life, the unrepairable life. In the past, our day-to-day walk was consistent with our life source. But now we have an entirely different life source. Why would we continue to um, give in to that old life source rather than learning to appropriate the provisions to live in a way that's consistent with our new life. And so, rather than yielding ourselves over and over to sin's use, we're to put off that old life, that old source. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices. Now, in addition to the list he's already, Paul's already given us, which W.H. Griffith Thomas refers to as sins of unchastity, our old life, our old man, also revealed itself in ways which were uncharitable and untruthful. It was characterized by what Paul describes as anger and wrath. One has to do with outbursts of anger. The other has to do with vengefulness. It was characterized by malice. And the word malice means badness in quality. It's the opposite of excellence. Our lives are to be excellent. In other words, Paul's saying the actions of the old life are not driven by things that are considered excellent, but by things that are considered bad. The old man is always guided by bad motivations. Even things that look good outwardly have bad motivations. Its speech was slanderous. Sought to defame others. Spoke in abusive ways. It's marked by lying. And this could be speaking lies, but a lot of times it's not just speaking lies. The old life seeks to live a lie. It paints one picture of itself that's not true. All these characteristics that Paul describes here are destructive. Because sin is always destructive. In Romans 6, Paul says what? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I know that's quoted oftentimes 
as a salvation verse, but that verse is actually written to the to Christians. It's actually written to Christians. Romans six is is to Christians, not to unbelievers. Now it's true of the unbeliever. But sin has but one wage that it pays. It always destroys. You know, people say, well, if Christ paid for all our sins, why does sin even matter anymore to God? Because sin is destructive. It always kills. Now, some sins are more outwardly destructive than others, but in the end, they're all destructive. Marriages are killed by sin. Parent-child relationships are killed by sin. Careers are killed by sin. Sin is destructive. God gives life. So, why should we hold on to anything of the old? The old is destructive. We need instead to learn to live on the basis of the new. So Paul exhorts us to put off these actions. Because we have lain that old life source aside. And I think it's important to note here. Paul does not exhort us to cease from doing these things so that the old life might be done away with. He challenges us to turn from these things because the old life has been dealt with. Romans 6.6 Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, nailed there on the cross, that the body or the, the full extent of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The old has been dealt with. And so Paul calls upon us to turn from these things because the old has been dealt with by Christ. And we have something entirely new instead to live by. And I'll stop at that point. We're out of time. But we're going to, you know... Paul talks about what we put off, but he never stops there. And it's kind of unfortunate that we're having to stop there. Because he moves on to what we're to put on. And the Christian life isn't simply defined by what we turn from. It's what we turn to. It's not what we give up, but what gets replaced by something of greater value. And so next week, uh, we'll move into the area that deals with what we're to put on. We're to put off the old, but we're to put on the new. And how that, uh, the potential it has uh, as we put it on. Okay, let me have a word of prayer and we'll close. Lord, we do thank you now for this time. We thank you again, Lord, for all that we are and have in Christ. May it increasingly sink home in our hearts and minds. 
May we come to see ourselves through your eyes. And may our focus increasingly be on Christ who is our source. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.